Thank you. Great to be with you. Um, yeah, absolute privilege to be here, actually. Um, I really, really enjoyed getting to know Pastor Dave and Julie when we were overseas. I only knew them via a tour meeting beforehand and a couple of conversations. Hey, Andy. <laughs> oh, old friends, it's so good. <laughs> it feels like coming home. I've never been here before, but it feels like coming home because I've seen these two. Um, yeah, so it was really, it was a lot of fun. Um, I've got some photos. I'm not going to bore you with all of them, but I do have uh, a couple of photos. Um, so this is us at the base of Mars Hill. We actually had uh, five clergy on the tour, and um, one of them was sick that day, but that's the clergy from the tour, um, not looking at all like clergy, which is great. And um, so just at the base of the... Um, the Acropolis in Athens, where the Parthenon is atop, that's Mars Hill at the bottom, and it's just basically a big marble rock. But on top of that rock is where Paul, in Acts chapter 17, gave his message to the Areopagus and talked about the unknown God and uh, evangelised in a completely different way than what he had done before. So that, uh, that plaque there is his speech written in Greek. So um, that's us there. And then um, once we got to Israel, I said to... Um, I said to Dave, how about you lead a devotion for us on the Sea of Galilee? And so that's us on our boat on the Sea of Galilee. Um, you'd never know it, but the war had actually broken out the day before. We were still able to do our tours in the Galilee region because we weren't near the rocket fire at the time. And, uh, and so Dave gave us this wonderful message um, on the Sea of Galilee about one of the stories from the Sea of Galilee, which was just wonderful. And that's the boat as it was kind of coming in. So gorgeous, very um, serene place. They haven't allowed it to be built up or commercialised or anything, which is really, really good. So it's a beautiful place to be. And I just had an absolute hoot hanging out with those guys, especially Julie, who I've discovered as kind of the extrovert version of me. Uh, we're pretty much the same person otherwise. Um, and uh, yeah, she's, yeah, she's the loud version of me. And uh, we have so many of the, the same kind of um, uh, sense of humour and taste and all of that kind of stuff. So they were, they were a lot of fun. So we're looking at the final letter. And I'd love to say that they gave me an easy one. They didn't. Um, so you're going to have to strap your seatbelt on for this. Because <laughs> um, a lot of the letters, as you know, uh, were wonderful encouragement from, well, some of the letters, two of the letters were just encouragement um, to the churches and the way that they were living their lives. Philadelphia, obviously, and Smyrna, as you've already had a look at, just encouragement. Um, but there are a couple of letters that were just rebuke, and we're looking at one of those today. But I, I wanted to, to start just by um, remembering a, a story that I learned when I was a child, The Emperor's New Clothes. You remember that story? Um, from years and years ago. Nobody really talks about it these days, but it, it kind of, it's popped back into my mind looking at this particular uh, letter to the church at Laodicea, and we'll see why. But it's basically the story, to refresh the memory, or for anybody who hasn't heard it, is too young to have heard the story of the emperor's new clothes. Basically, these two con men, they turn up at this emperor's um, kingdom. And this emperor was absolutely into fashion. He was like the guy who was on the edge of everything that was coming out. He wanted the best clothes and to look absolutely glorious and for people to, as he sort of, he's, he's, you know, sashayed down the street, he wanted for people to look at him and go, oh my goodness, oh, have you seen that new fabric? That's just amazing. And so he would, um, he would head down the street and, and everybody would ooh-ah. And so these con men realised, we can get in on this action. 
And so they turned up and they said, we're weavers and we've got this brand new technology where we sew um, this fabric that is invisible to anybody who is stupid or incompetent. And, uh, and so the emperor thought, yeah, that's great. I love that. I'm going to be able to wear this, this fabric and then all of the people who can't see it will, be able, will know who's the, who the stupid and incompetent people are. And so these weavers, they got to, got to action, they got to work, they sat down at their looms, they had all of these officials coming in to check on their work, and of course all they're doing is just pretending to weave. But the, the officials didn't want to admit that they couldn't see the thread, because then they would have to admit that they were stupid or incompetent. Neither did the emperor want to admit that he couldn't see the thread, because otherwise he would have to admit that he was stupid or incompetent. So nobody said anything, and they just allowed them to carry on with the ruse. Eventually, these, these two con men, they get their, their uh, suit finished. They say to the emperor, it's time for you to put it on. I assume he had undies. He's wearing his undies. He gets this amazing outfit, and then he starts, and they're going, oh, oh, it looks so amazing. Oh, you look incredible. And so then he heads down the street, having this parade, and then as everybody's kind of standing there looking and ooing and ahhing at these invisible clothes that don't actually exist, finally this little child comes running out and says, but he's not wearing anything. And then everybody realises that they'd been had. And the emperor finds himself in this spot where he is naked. He realises his nakedness and, uh, and he is utterly embarrassed. Of course, we look at a story like that and, you know, just somebody's made-up fable, Aesop's fable, right? And we sort of look at it and we think, oh, how silly and it's kind of cute and clever. But really, when it comes down to it, there's this deep gut realisation within each of us that we have blind spots about our own nakedness that we don't know certain things about ourselves. You ever notice that you can pinpoint somebody else's weaknesses and it's very difficult to pinpoint your own? Other people can see flaws in you that you can't see in yourself. This is sort of part of what we do as humans. We get to a state or to a stage where we're not even able to recognise our own flaws or see our own nakedness for what it is. And so as we have a look at the story, uh, Jesus is going to be speaking about the nakedness of the Laodiceans, and it is nakedness that also speaks to our condition. So we need to be able to look and listen and hear what the Lord might be saying, not just to them, but to us. So we're at our, our seventh letter, our final letter, and you guys have been following this map um, of the churches. Uh, the seven churches. We actually, um, on Dave and Julie's tour, we ended up visiting six of the seven this time around. Um, two of them are in very built-up cities um, today, and so the ruins are not really that worth looking at, but we were close to Philadelphia, so we went anyway. Um, but we went and had a look at, at six of them, and certainly some of the sites are amazing, um, big kind of ruins. And uh, we're at the final one here Laodicea, known by the Turks as Laodicea, um, in the correct kind of um, pronunciation of it. And this is Dave and I standing on the main street of the ruins of Laodicea. Um, so you've kind of got mountains in the background there. The ruins themselves are just being uncovered and reconstructed, and they're doing it 365 days a year, actually, the Turks at the moment. And so every time that you go, uh, I've now been three times across 10 years, and every time that I go, there's, um, there's significantly more that has been uncovered or reconstructed. So it's, a, it's a, an alive setting to go to this particular site. 
So um, in each of these places, we stopped and we read the letter and we went and had a look a little bit in depth as we could as we were going along. The Laodicea was known in its time um, as a wealthy centre for business and banking. Um, these guys were incredibly wealthy and they were, they were known sort of in the region as being the wealthiest of the cities as far as personal wealth of the people in that time. They were also known for producing black wool. Um, dyes in the time, and you know, when you looked at, at Thyatira, you would have seen that there, were, there was a purple dye that was well known for that region. But black dye is one of the hardest things to come across in that region and, um, and to find something that would dye and last a long time. So if you were a producer of black wool and you had a whole lot of black, black sheep, then um, being able to produce fabric from that black wool would mean that it was sought after right across the Roman Empire. So they were known for that. They also had a medical centre there that specialised in eye conditions. They used to have um, an ointment that they made that they'd figured out how to make. And, uh, and when they placed this ointment on people's eyes, it would actually fix up uh, a lot of their eye conditions um, if it was sort of a disease or a bacteria or anything like that. So they were known in their medical centre for being healers of eyes. And they were incredibly proud. They were the kind of city that, because of the wealth that they had managed to get, both through their medical centre and through their black wool and their banking, they were kind of seen as the, the place that you would go if you wanted to be wealthy and you wanted to set yourself up for life and have anything that you needed to have. They were very, very rich in resource and just in pure wealth, affluent place. And um, they were so affluent in actual fact that in AD 60, there was a, an earthquake that went through the region that actually flattened the entire city. And the, um, the Roman emperor at the time came to them and said, we'd like to help you rebuild. And they went, no, thank you. We'll do it ourselves. No interest in any help from the Roman Empire. They, just, they, they were wealthy. Not only were they wealthy, they were proud about their wealth. We can do it. We don't need you. Very, very self-sufficient people. And so Jesus comes in this letter. He doesn't commend them. He only rebukes them. And we, we know that this, this refrain is used again and again where he says, let anyone who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So while we've been having a look at all of these different churches and the, the things that Jesus wants to speak to them through the pen of John as he's on Patmos, he's giving each of them a, a recognition of what he wants to say to them through something that they can identify as being part of their community first. But beyond that, we get, let anyone who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, us, down through the ages, need to be able to look at these letters as, you, as you've been doing and see what is it that relates to me? What is it that relates to us? And as soon as we start to look at this word affluence, you know immediately that it relates to us. Because as much as inflation is going up and life is difficult at times for us, compared to what we're used to, globally we also know that we are an incredibly wealthy people. And God's church across this nation is affluent. And so immediately if you start to see in these letters these kind of things that describe them also describing us, 
we need to open our ears and listen to what he might be wanting to say to us. So we're going to start chapter 3 and verse 14. It says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. So remember, Jesus has been giving himself a title in every single letter. In this one, he calls himself the Amen, which means, literally means, the so be it. In other words, the final say, the final authority, the faithful witness who sees everything as it is and is not deceived. He says, I am the final authority. This is the final word. And this is how it will be. So he's giving them a very, very strong command here. He's not saying, I'm just kind of suggesting, you know, this might be good for you if. He's going, this is it, my friends. You must listen to your peril. Then he continues and he says, I know your deeds that you are neither hot, uh, neither cold nor hot, and I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, because you are neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. What a strange thing to say. We immediately think to ourselves, this is about passion, right? You need to have passion. Um, you need to have spiritual passion that's really, really hot. But the problem is that if you come to the, the text with that as your, um, your interpretation of it, then on the flip side, he's essentially saying, I'd prefer that your passion was really, really cold and lifeless rather than being lukewarm. And that doesn't make any sense whatsoever, right? Because Jesus doesn't want us to have cold, lifeless passion. He wants us to be hot. So what does he mean by this? We're going to have a little bit of a look. And this is actually a video from, not from the time that I was here with uh, Dave and Julie, but from five years beforehand, um, just kind of showing us a little bit of the landscape of what's going on here. So let's watch. Standing here at the um, newly opened, only two months ago, opened um, excavated church at the ruins at Laodicea. Um, this church, they reckon, was about 380 AD. And um, it's pretty amazing. Let me show you some stuff. Here's the baptistry. So an entry and an exit, always an entry and an exit for um, older churches and certainly for Jewish people. Uh, right up there in the distance, you can see there's foothills below the mountains. The foothills there is uh, Colossae. Colossae is right there. And then if we just go around here, I'm going to show you how close it is since I'm standing right in the middle of the Laodicea room up just over here, there, with the white in the distance, that are the, uh, that's the calcium terraces of Hierapolis. So Hierapolis is um, about six miles that away from Laodicea, and Colossae, about 12 miles that away, and the three cities can see each other, which is pretty amazing. So what's really cool uh, about this amazing place, and it's really cool to be here, especially with this newly opened site, um, it's massive. They're working on it 24-7, um, actually, and they have excavated 10% of the site in the past 10 years, which is extraordinary, given that they've been working on Ephesus for 150 years, and they've only uh, excavated 15% of it. So in the five years that it's been since I was here last, there's an enormous amount um, that has been excavated since then, which is pretty amazing to see. Anyway, I'll get on with it. I'll get on with it, meaning I'll start to read the letter to you, <laughs> which is what I was doing the video for. 
Um, but he, he says this. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. Now, we want to have a little bit of context of what's going on here. Those three cities are just in this little triangle shape. They would have known each other very well. The people would have traded with each other. They would have uh, travelled to each other. We know that they did that because Paul wrote a letter to the church at Colossae, right? We have Colossians, and he writes in this and he says, share this letter with the church at Laodicea and get them to share their letter with you, which is kind of cool because we don't even know that there is a letter. But he tells us there is one, so I'm excited about the excavations because the more that they excavate, I'm hoping that they find some kind of terracotta pot somewhere in a cave underneath what they're looking for and actually find Paul's letter for us. I reckon that'd be awesome. But anyway, we know that they communicated with each other, that they had a relationship with each other. That's how close the places were. And there's something else that was happening here because um, Colossae was built right nearby a, um, a spring and Hierapolis is right on a spring, but Laodicea doesn't have any water source. So even though you've kind of got these three cities right near each other and Laodicea has all of this wealth, they don't have the ability to get water to the city. So what did they do? They built Roman aqueducts to each of the places and they went to um, Hierapolis's uh, hot springs, which I've got a picture of here, the hot water springs at Hierapolis, and they built an aqueduct from that and then they went to the cold springs at Colossae and they built an aqueduct from that. And so consequently what happens is through these two aqueducts bringing water to the church or to the city of Laodicea by the time that it gets there what do you have? Lukewarm water. Now, the hot springs at Hierapolis were very very useful. They were great for healing. They had they're full of mineral salts and they were nice and warm. The top terraces are warmer than the bottom terraces. They kind of get colder as they go down, uh, this kind of cascade down the mountain. And so people would come from all over the place for healing. It's kind of sitting, like sitting in a radox bath, you know, except better because it's natural. And so they come into these places and they would be wanting like their skin conditions healed. They would want their bodies, aches and pains, all of those kind of things healed. People with um, rheumatoid arthritis would be looking to this place so that they could come in. They could sit in these pools and they could get this healing happening to them. But Colossae had just your classic cold water mountain spring. This is the kind of water that you'd want to bottle. It's for refreshing it's for nourishment. It's to make sure that the body has the hydration that it needs. And so Colossae had water that was worthwhile and useful. Hierapolis had water that was worthwhile and useful. But Laodicea had a mixture of the two. It was lukewarm and it was good for nothing. It was just there to sustain them for their need for water. But as far as actually being useful for anything... It was good for nothing. So Jesus is essentially saying in here, he's going, he's going, I want you to understand that I don't want you to have this good for nothing water in your soul. I actually want for your deeds to be hot, bringing healing, or cold, bringing refreshing and hydration. I don't want for you to be this good for nothing group of people whose deeds are actually achieving nothing at all. This is what he's saying to them. 
And when I think about the way that, that Scripture uses water again and again, you know, we're constantly hearing about water in Scripture as being so important because it is life-giving. You remember Jesus talked about being living water as he spoke to the woman, in, the Samaritan woman, in John chapter 6. He has this conversation with her, and he's saying, you can have this water from the well, but I am living water. If you would just drink from me, you'll never be thirsty again. Even when you go back to the Psalms and you look at Psalms like Psalm 23 that we know so well, you know, lead, be, lead me beside streams of still water, right? And so there's this, this idea that water itself brings life. And so Jesus is using this metaphor for this church at Laodicea so that they would not only be able to recognize themselves within it, but also understand the meaning behind it. I need for your deeds to be useful, what are their deeds? Their deeds are the way that they bring themselves out in their community, the way that they do mission within their community. Their job was to be healers, to bring healing to the people around them. Their job was to bring refreshing and purity and righteousness and life-giving to the community around them. They were the place that people were supposed to be able to come to and say, I can find Jesus here. I can find the healing of the spirit here. I can find the refreshing and the hydration of the spirit here. And it is saying to them, no, you're lukewarm. No one's finding anything here. What are you doing? And he begins his rebuke of them. He continues and he says in verse 17, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. Wow, just when you feel like the rebuke is, you know, he got to the height of it, then he just twists the knife a little bit. You say, I have everything, but you don't even know that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. This is where he, this whole understanding that we have of the, the emperor's new clothes, our own nakedness, we can't even necessarily see. This is what he's saying to them. He goes, you don't even know. Because guess what? You're looking at your affluence and you're looking at your resource and you're going, look what we can do for the Lord. And so you're standing in the midst of your community and you're going, look what we have to offer. And he's going, but you don't even know that what you're offering the world around you is completely missing the point. Where's the healing that I asked you to bring? Where's the refreshing and the purification that I asked you to bring? Where's that? You don't even understand how blind and how naked you are. They were very kind to me when they gave me this one, weren't they? <laughs> Come into the church, beat them all around the head. It's okay, because I get to leave and then you can go, thank goodness she's gone, it's okay. But guess what? Affluence begets pride. And pride begets blindness. And blindness begets nakedness. It's not that the Lord hates riches and he hates money. But if we allow it to take over our soul we won't even understand how far away we are moving from the call of God. We won't even see it. It just happens by osmosis because the affluence took over our heart. 
See, the Laodiceans were wealthy, they were self-reliant, and it meant that they had become useless. They had allowed themselves to be taken into a place where they were no longer doing what the Lord had called them to do. And so in that instance, Jesus says, the riches have made you poor. Their strength and their self-reliance had made them weak. Because it comes to us all the way through the New Testament, you hear it again and again, that the Lord wants for us to boast of our weakness. He wants us to rely on him. He wants us to walk by the Spirit. He wants to be the one who we are constantly going to, not in our own strength. And they were doing the very opposite of this, the very opposite of this. He continues on and he says in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. Get that. Buy from me gold so that you can become rich. They already thought they were. And he says, white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. He's saying to them, I want for you to come and I want you to buy these things from me. You know what that means? They cost. They cost. Come to me and buy from me gold that is refined. And here he's talking about faith. He's talking about a faith that, is, um, that experiences challenge and hardship. Gold that is placed into a fire actually experiences the challenge and hardship that is required in order to purify it. As so he says, I want for you to come to me and find that faith. And then he says, um, I want you to buy from me white clothes. And he's talking here about purity and righteousness. Purity and righteousness. Come and dress yourself in clothes that are pure and righteous. And then he says to them, I want you to buy from me salve for your eyes. Get that. They felt like they had an ointment that people were coming and looking for. And he says, but I want you to buy from me salve for your eyes so that you'll be able to see. Because at the moment, you're blind. Come to me for that. So what does this look like for us? You know, when the Lord is saying to us, I want for you to have a faith that is strong, that is purified, it's understanding that, yeah, it's going to cost. That means that we have to choose our faith and we have to choose righteousness and we have to come to the Lord and say, purify me. I'm going to choose repentance. I'm going to choose what you say is righteous. I'm going to come to you and find out what truth is from you so that you can purify me. We come to him and we say, I want white clothes. I want that purity, Lord. What does that look like? It means I'm not going to be soiled by what the culture around me tells, us, tells me is correct. Your truth, that's what purifies me, Lord. What is it that, that then is going to take away my blindness? What is the self that he wants us to come and find from him? He wants us to come into his presence and to spend time with him and to get his eyes on what's going on around us. Honestly, have you guys gotten sick and tired of the noise in the past few years? Oh my goodness. More polarization than ever in my lifetime. Everyone's so angry and they've all got like a million opinions. I have. Our opinions on everything. 
Well, I stand solidly on this particular line and solidly on that particular line, and it is noise. We're being fed noise through our screens, whether it's the news through the TV, whether it's on our social media feeds, constant noise again and again. How do we get to see what's real, what's true? We go and ask the Lord. We ask the Lord. We come to him and we buy it from him. Lord, you give me eyes to see what you're doing. You give me eyes to see what you can see. Show me through your eyes what's going on. And then somehow in the midst of that, we discover the love and the heart of God, the humility. We get rid of our pride because he has allowed us to see with his eyes. When they see, they'll begin to understand what their deeds should be. Now I want to take a little bit of a wide-angle lens here and jump back to chapter 1 for a second because there's something really significant that's going on here. In, chapter, uh, in Revelation 1 verse 20, it says, The seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now why is it significant that the church itself would be a lampstand? There's a very good reason for that. The temple had within it what we know as a menorah. The menorah was placed outside of the Holy of Holies in the holy place. And the menorah was a seven-branched lampstand. It had in the top of it um, uh, wicks and then it had olive oil that was placed into each of the, the little kind of bowls at the top of it. And it had been there since the tabernacle was created back in the time of Exodus. Moses was instructed how to build it, how big it was meant to be, what it was meant to be made out of, pure gold, which is a representation of God. And it had to be one beaten work. Isn't that interesting? It lines up with who Jesus is, one beaten work. It also had to have seven branches and it had to be connected to a trunk. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He also says, I am the light of the world. And so this menorah would stay in the temple, the tabernacle and then the temple, and the high priest would come in and would refill the oil every single day, make sure that it was changed and refilled and you had fresh oil, and then it was to stay alight, just keep burning all of the time. Now what is oil a representation for in scripture? The Holy Spirit. And then the light would continue to burn, and if you were a person, a Jewish person, up and right through those centuries and millennia where the menorah was in that holy place, you would know that if you wanted to find the light of the presence of God, that's where you were meant to go. The menorah was there. The menorah was just outside the presence of God. That's where you were meant to go for it. But you know what happened in AD 70? The temple was destroyed. The menorah was lost. And so we find ourselves 20 years later... And John's dictating these words from Jesus, and Jesus says, the seven churches are the seven lampstands. All of a sudden, the menorah is no longer kept within the temple walls, but because of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, the, the lampstands have been distributed to the church. So what does that mean? That means that the church now takes their responsibility of being the place where you find the presence of God. The church now takes the responsibility of being the light to the world. And so if we look through that context, all of a sudden we start to see that this church at Laodicea were missing the point when it came to that. What should the deeds of the Laodiceans be? To bring light and truth to the community around them. 
to be the centre of the worship of God in their community so the community would know his presence, to be the place where you would find the Lord being worshipped constantly and honour being given to him, to be pure, to be constantly replenished and refilled with the Holy Spirit so they don't, they don't flicker out, and to be near the presence of God in everything. If this is our job as the Church of God to be a lampstand, then that is what we are called to do, and that is who we are called to be. We are called to be a light in the darkness to the community around us, a place where they can find the presence of God. And I don't mean within the walls of the church, I mean in us as the church. Verse 19, he says, Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Now that's a fridge magnet verse, isn't it? We like to use that one. Mostly we like to use it when we're talking to somebody who doesn't know Jesus yet. And we say, do you know what? Jesus is standing outside the door of your heart and he's knocking and he wants to come in. And while that's true, that's not what John was writing down. That's not what Jesus was saying. Do you know what he was saying? He's saying, guess what, church? I'm outside. I'm knocking. And you're unaware that I'm not even inside. It's a plea, a devastating plea. And one that should bring us to a place of absolute repentance before the Lord because the last place that we need the Lord to be if we are the light of the world and we are the place where the presence of God should be found the last place that the Lord should be is outside he needs to be in with us and we need to be filled with him his Holy Spirit totally changing everything about us. It harks, I think, right back to the very first letter to the Ephesians when he said, you've lost your first love. And you might have brilliant doctrine, but if you've lost me, you've lost everything. And don't get me wrong, doctrine is good, and I think the Lord loves good doctrine. He certainly loves truth, and the church has started to fudge on those areas. But more than anything, we need Holy Spirit in our midst. We need to be the people of the presence of God. Verse 21. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I love this because it's hope at the end. You know, if you're victorious in this, if you actually heed my voice, if you repent, you come and you listen to what I'm saying, then I want to tell you, you're not just going to be victorious in this life, you're going to be victorious beyond it. And you will be exalted in the same way that I was exalted. How glorious is it that we get to follow in the footsteps of Jesus? We get, to, we get to grow and follow in him, not just in this life, but we actually get to pursue what he has for us in the life after. You see, it's a call to live well now, but it's in pursuit of what is to come.
The Laodiceans, they might have had wealth then, but they couldn't buy the accolades to come. They could only do what the Lord was asking him to do. So my question, I guess, then for us is, can we honestly look, yeah, from, a, from an individual level, but also from a corporate level, at the areas that the Lord might be wanting to put his finger on with us? I know for absolute certain that when it comes to the two waters, the church in Australia, by and large, and especially Baptists, we're pretty good with the cold water. We're not great with the hot. The Holy Spirit hasn't changed. He never changed. He was healing people back in Jesus' time. He was healing people back in the apostles' time. What are we doing in the midst of that? Let's be honest. What might the Lord be wanting to place his finger on with us? What about in the area of purity? What about in the area of blindness? What about in the area of just simply having a faith that is absolutely founded on what the Lord says is truth? Because we're in a culture now that tells us that you can have your truth and I can have my truth. There is actually no such thing as your truth and my truth. There's only the truth. And the church should be the place where you find it. So what do we do with that? What are the areas that we've started to allow the fudging of culture to actually pull us away from what the Lord calls us to be, who the Lord calls us to be. And the final area that I just want to challenge us on is just simply that area of the presence of God. If we are called to be the light to the world, then they should be able to find his presence in us. As we go out, as we do what we do, do we carry the presence of God? Are we replenished daily with the Holy Spirit? Are we people who you can find the light of God's word in as we live in the world that we live in? Because I, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a person who was so blinded by what I have that I can't see what the Lord is asking of me and I can't see who he is asking me to be or how far I am away from that. I don't believe that you do either. And so today, I think, as we finish these seven letters, we have an opportunity to allow the Lord to move our heart and to come to him in a place of repentance. I've said to our congregation, I don't know how many times over this past year, repentance is not a chore. Repentance is a gift. You get to start again. The Lord's faithful to forgive us, so why wouldn't we come to him every single day? And just go, Lord, you know, here I am. This is, this is the thing that I, I was thinking or I was feeling in my heart. It wasn't Holy Spirit thought. It wasn't part of the fruit of the Spirit. Can you forgive me? Let's start again. I repent. I change that. Let's go. Let's go. Constantly moving from glory to glory, as Paul says. Every single day, an opportunity to change. Because the Lord is faithful to forgive. So why would we not take him up on that? But we need to be able to be honest about where we're at in order to do that. So I wonder if right now you might just stand. So I'd like to lead us in a time of prayer. And in this, in this moment, as we pray, just allow the Lord to place his finger on what he wants to place his finger on in your heart.
Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your words to these churches and that we get to learn from them. So many centuries later, we can read back and we can see how it applies to us as well. You're so gracious to us that you do that. And Lord, as we stand before you today as your people, we want to start by just saying to you, we love you. We're so grateful for who you are that we get to be a part of your church. We get to be a part of your family. That you chose us, that you set us apart. Lord, we also know that there is always opportunity for us to grow. And there are always areas that we are not seeing properly within ourselves. Lord, I want to pray right now as we stand before you that by your Holy Spirit, you would place your finger on something in each of us that you want for us to either work on or to hand over to you and repent of. Lord, for some of us, we have become so used to doing things in our own strength, we don't even understand how to hear your voice or how to follow your lead. And we repent of that, Lord. We ask that you would speak to us clearly, that you would show us opportunities, that you would show us the the areas that you want us to move into. Lord, for some of us, we've started to fudge the edges of the truth because we want to be accepted. We've been living under a fear of what other people might think or say about us rather than living with boldness for you. Lukewarm. Lord, we repent right now. We ask that you would give us the courage and the boldness to live out your faith. With confidence and in truth and in honesty with the people we come into contact with. Lord, for some of us, we are timid when it comes to our faith. We don't want to share. We've kept it private. And Lord, we we want to be people who bring healing and who bring restoration. To bring the water of your presence to the people around us, Lord. So Lord, we repent of that and we ask, Holy Spirit, right now, would you come and fill us afresh so that we would be people who have your boldness, that we have your words, that we have your heart behind us so that when we we meet people, when we speak to people, when we have conversations with people, that we would not be timid, that we would be people who want to step out and, and see your healing happen and and see your refreshing happen and see your truth enter this world. We want to be people who are on mission for you because that's who you called us to be, people who carry your light, people who carry your presence to this world. And so, Lord God, wherever that area is for us, I pray, Lord, give us the courage right now to surrender to you. I thank you that you forgive us 
and that you give us new beginnings every single day. You're happy to do it because you're growing us and you're challenging us and changing us and constantly transforming us. Lord, we give ourselves to you for that. We surrender to you for that because we know that you are good and you have a purpose for every single one of us in mind. As a calm Lord right now, fill us afresh. We thank you for your forgiveness. And we choose to follow you from this moment forward. And we thank you for what you will do in and through us because of what you've taught us over these last seven weeks. We thank you, Lord. And we pray all these things in the matchless and beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.